This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 11th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, contributing correspondent Emily Underwood talks about the surprising role of the vagus nerve in all kinds of things once thought to be the brain's domain, like consciousness and memory. Next, researcher Sarah Katsanis talks about the best way to use DNA to reunite families separated by governments, conflicts, and disasters. First up this week, we have contributing correspondent Emily Underwood. She wrote a feature about the vagus nerve and how its connections between the brain and internal organs make it central to all kinds of surprising things. Hi, Emily. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Oh, sure. Long time. What made you decide to write about this right now? Honestly, I I hear about the vagus nerve a lot. A lot of sort of clinical psychologists, a lot of health practitioners of every stripe talk a lot about the vagus as being really important to mental health. There are a lot of ways of stimulating the vagus that are, you know, don't involve any kind of electrical device like exercise, singing, plunging into cold water. Some of these are not well studied. We're at an exciting time right now with these new anatomical studies where we're really starting to be able to drill down on, well, what do we mean when we say that the vagus is beneficial to well-being or that stimulating it makes us feel better? What actually is happening in the body and the brain? And can we make the interventions that deal with the vagus a lot more targeted and specific? Let's talk about the anatomy. The vagus nerve is a cranial nerve. These are an important set of nerves that come out of the skull and extend to all different parts of the body. What parts of the body does it connect to? The vagus nerve is this huge meandering superhighway. It has roughly 100,000 nerve fibers and they connect to the heart and the lungs and the gut, the spleen, the pancreas. 
it has links to many, many organs inside the body. It goes into the skull, but then it what links up with things that are in the brain? It goes into the brain stem, so the base of the brain. And then it connects to nerves that extend into many different brain regions. This isn't easy to trace. Can you talk about why that is? The biggest reason it's difficult to trace in humans is that the techniques that scientists use to trace neuron anatomy are not well suited to people. It's also difficult to trace the vagus nerve in the body itself, because like a lot of peripheral nerves, the vagus has fibers that are thin and sparse and are difficult to trace with traditional methods. But now we're starting to see how some of those connections work. The rabies virus is a good example of a really powerful tool that can trace linked networks of neurons backwards in the opposite direction that the nerve sends signals. So you can, for example, inject rabies into the stomach, and then that virus will hop up six, seven, even more neurons all the way up into the brain, which allows scientists to see its destination all the way up in the brain. Another important technique for dissecting the vagus nerve is single-cell RNA sequencing, which lets scientists sort out different sensory cell types by gene expression. Steve Lieberlis at Harvard, for example, has found that there are at least 37 different types of sensory cell in the vagus that detect things like stretch or chemical irritants. One of the things this nerve does is called interoception, basically sensing our insides. How is this different from our other senses? We're all really familiar with extraception, which is how input comes from the outside in. Things like vision or hearing. Interoception is how the insides of the body, so the guts and the heart and the lungs and all those organs we were talking about, how they send signals to the brain and then how the brain makes sense of them and uses that information to make sure that the body has the resources it needs to act, whether that's releasing glucose into the bloodstream or causing the heart to speed up or to slow down or breathing to increase or slow down. These are all examples of interoception. Some people are better at this, better at interoception than others. But at the same time, that's not necessarily a good thing. There's a sweet spot here, right? We really don't want to be constantly aware of everything going on inside of our bodies. Just imagine knowing and being aware all the time of what your liver was doing or your (laughs) spleen was doing. They'd be exhausted and you wouldn't be able to focus on signals coming from outside in, like a bus is racing towards you and about to hit you. It's really important that we only pay attention to the signals from inside our bodies that are relevant to our survival and that tell us, you know, you need to eat, you need to pee, you need to drink water, that kind of thing. It's important to be able to interpret and respond to those signals accurately. And there is some evidence that people with conditions like anxiety and depression, even chronic pain, may be processing some of these signals differently than people without those conditions. This is pretty preliminary data, but there are some intriguing patterns that show differences 
I like this test where you swallow a buzzy pill, a pill that actually <laughs> vibrates. Right. So scientists are looking for new ways to test interoceptive processing, both in terms of people's experience of it and how it works in the brain. A fun, interesting example that I wrote about in this story is this buzzing capsule that researchers ask participants to swallow and then measure how accurate they are at detecting the timing of the buzz as it passes through the stomach. And they are also measuring brain activity to see if their experiences relate to their brain activity. We should emphasize here that the vagus nerve is a two-way street. The information goes in both directions. I think it's really important to remember that in part because the fact that it's a feedback loop is yet one more thing that makes it difficult to study. (laughs) Which direction of the traffic is important in which scenario? Yeah, the EEG study of the buzzing capsule is a good example. So you send signals from the stomach into the brain. Well, what is the brain then telling the stomach? There are research techniques that were even used in that study to sort of try to tease out what direction the signals are moving and and what influence they have, but it's not easy. It's not at all an easy thing to untangle. We talked a little bit about how this idea of interoception works with us sensing our internal organs as needed, but it may also play a role in consciousness. The vagus nerve interoception may play a role in consciousness. I guess this makes sense because, you know, our experience, our lived experience does include sensations from inside and outside. Is that what's meant here? You know, so as you say, on the one hand, this just seems like common sense. You know, of course, sensations from inside our bodies influence our experience. A good example is if you've ever had a friend or maybe you yourself who who gets hangry and you're not sure why you're so mad, but it turns out you just haven't eaten and you, you just need a snack and your whole mood changes. This is really familiar to all of us. I think what's interesting and sort of historically has been underappreciated is just how much these interoceptive signals and even the ones that are not conscious are influencing functions like learning and decision-making that we've often considered mostly happening in the brain and even in sort of higher, quote-unquote, higher regions of, of the brain like the cortex. This research suggests that there's another layer from the body That's incredibly important. Research into the role of this nerve, the vagus nerve, is expanding in so many different directions. And I want to touch on a few of them, particularly this realization that higher, quote unquote, brain functions are connected to the vagus nerve, for example, in memory. So that's really fascinating. One of the studies that I talk about in the story is a recent study in rodents showing that if you sever specific sensory vagal connections from the stomach to the brain, that that actually impairs memory in these animals. They have difficulty finding their way out of a maze, for example. So that suggests that what's happening in our guts is really important to memory formation. There is some evidence in people, too, that the vagus nerve can influence memory. And that's a hypothesis that researchers are exploring in clinical trials. For example, there's a a study of vagus nerve stimulation in people with cognitive impairment who are likelier to go on to develop Alzheimer's disease. And so stimulating the vagus nerve, their hope is that it will slow or prevent that slide into dementia? Yeah, the idea is that it will enhance memory and counteract 
its loss. Like on the one hand, it seems, I think, surprising to a lot of people that there's this direct link between the stomach and memory, but it's actually something that I think is reflected in our daily experiences and really important to our survival. It's important, for example, to know where we found food and what kinds of foods made us sick. There's another link here between the vagus nerve and motivation and reward. That's right. Quite recently, researchers at Duke identified cells in the gut that sense nutrients and have a lightning fast, direct vagal connection to the brain. And scientists followed up and found that stimulating these sensory gut neurons actually causes the release of dopamine, which is a a neurotransmitter involved in reward. So that could help explain why eating makes us feel good, why eating certain types of foods make us feel better than others, and potentially how stimulating the vagus nerve can elevate mood, which started out as kind of an accidental finding when they were exploring it for treating epilepsy, but has been now approved as a treatment for some kinds of severe depression. We should talk more about stimulating the vagus nerve. As you mentioned, implants have been used for uh, treating epilepsy. Do we know how that works and what are some ways to do it without surgery? The hypothesis is that stimulating this whole bundle of nerves in the vagus somehow resets patterns of electrical activity in the brain that can lead to seizures. It seems to work. People aren't really sure how it works. So that has caused a huge amount of excitement around vagus nerve stimulation for a wide range of of disorders. There are a lot of clinical trials going on to explore its potential, but obviously implanting something through surgery is a pretty big commitment and is it's a hard thing to study in big populations. So people are really excited about a different form of vagus nerve stimulation that can be tested through the ear. Now, scientists really aren't sure yet exactly how this branch of the vagus nerve that extends to the ear actually connects to the brainstem and how that actually affects the brain. This is why the anatomical work is so important, is to figure out where are these circuits actually going and what do they do. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you, Sarah. Emily Underwood is a contributing correspondent based in Northern California. You can find a link to the story we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with Sarah Katsanas about using DNA markers to reunite separated families. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Sarah Katsanis and colleagues wrote a policy forum in this week's issue of Science on how DNA can be used to bring families back together. Hi, Sarah. Hi. This piece focuses specifically on a framework for reuniting migrant families that have been separated by government policies. Why is this uh, the focus? Yes. For a number of years, migrant families have been 
separated when crossing the border for various reasons. Often the separations are in order to screen the families to be sure children are safe when they cross into the United States, especially. And sometimes children are traveling independently. They are already separated from families. In the last few years, there was an increase in separations under the previous presidential administration in the United States, particularly from 2018 around April through June. There was a strict policy of separating every migrant family that was coming into the United States in order to process them separately for their criminal activity of crossing the border. And it was this separation that came very suddenly into the system. So even those separations were something that were happening quite often or occasionally in prior years, there was a sudden onslaught of thousands of children being separated. Can you talk about how your group proposes that these reunions would work using DNA? So why use DNA and why is it not being done now, I guess? Right. So kind of both sides here. Yeah, well, when the separations were stopped or the harsh separations were stopped at the end of June 2018, the government actually said, okay, we're going to start using DNA to reconnect these families. But what they tried to do was to DNA test the individual family members. So if child A was missing from parent A, they looked for parent A, they looked for child A, and they would do a DNA test through a relationship testing laboratory. But it wasn't very successful because they couldn't find child A and parent A. They found child A, parent B. They didn't have a system in place for a database strategy. And this is where we're coming in and saying, okay, what we should have done back then, what we can do now is to manage a database system to reconnect these families rather than trying to do one-to-one testing. Right. And as soon as you say, oh, a DNA database, immediately privacy concerns come up. So how would that be handled in this kind of system? Absolutely. So the core of what we're proposing is that the DNA system be outside of any government control. So it would be held at a international intergovernmental level rather than any laboratory level in the United States or in Central America or in anywhere else. And that de-identification strategies be used to anonymize the data as it's going into the database. So we can use similar strategies as what's used in clinical trials. And we can set up the same system with the NGOs that are working with families, with legal representatives working with families, and then have the data managed at an intergovernmental level for a long term. It could be decades before some of these families are reunified. And we want that information to be retained and held for as long as necessary. We should also point out that the technology that you talk about in this article is not full genome sequencing but rather it's STR, short tandem repeats. Why use that approach for identifying people and matching people? Short tandem repeats are the common molecular tools that are used for identification because there are highly repetitive regions of DNA that are going to differ from person to person. In fact, it's so variable that it can mutate from generation to generation. But we look at enough of them 
that you can see patterns of relationships between a parent and a child. Those STRs are not linked to traits. They're not linked to any medical conditions. They're simply for identity and for kinship. We do think that it's possible that some families, we might want to use more extensive genomic markers. For example, if you get a partial match using STRs, but you're not quite sure, wait, is this a half sibling? Maybe it's a first cousin. Then you might want to go back to the original DNA sample and look at SNPs, the single nucleotide polymorphisms. I want to ask for a walkthrough of a kind of standard issue family separation, but that's not really something that exists. Every missing person's case is different. Every child separation case is different. It's going to be based on where the child is coming from, where the parent is now living. Was the child separated and placed with another relative? Was the child in place in a foster system? Was the child old enough, like 15 or 16-year-old, that eventually ran away from wherever they were placed, and we have no idea where they are. What about the pre-verbal children, the children that were three or four years old when they were separated? How do they communicate? They might not ever recognize their genetic families or families of origin. They might be better off in whatever home that they've known as they've been growing up the last few years. And the parents, some of them were deported, Some of them were undocumented in the United States and finding them, locating them, trying to gain their trust. These are the challenges that we're going to be facing across the board for these reunifications. Wow, there's a lot going on here. What about if a child and its guardian are not genetically related? How would this help them or not help them? Right. Well, this is also why we propose a database strategy rather than one-to-one testing, because using a database strategy, you're looking for genetic matches. If the family member does not have a genetic match, there's not going to be a report rather than a one-to-one test where you would say the purported parent and the purported child, you test them, you find out that they're not genetically related and you report that back, Mm -hmm. which is what was happening in 2018 or could be happening and opens up a lot of ethical questions around reporting this kind of information to to the people doing the DNA testing. That could harm the family if they don't know about certain genetic relationships within their family, or maybe they do and it was miscommunicated or misunderstood as they were filling out paperwork, et cetera. So we don't want this information to be harmful for them or to result in deportations. We want it only to be useful if that genetic information is useful. And if it's not, there's plenty of other strategies that are being used and should be used and have been used for the last three years trying to reconnect and reunify these families. I was surprised to learn that there is a long history of using DNA for identifying remains, again, some from wars or from terrorist incidences, but it hasn't been used for missing people or separated families in the case of migration. Why has this been so different? Yeah, I wish it had been used for, for many <laughs> years, and I have been talking about this for many years. Cross-border missing persons investigations are really, really challenging. Yeah, They're bureaucratically difficult to communicate information 
DNA data that is sensitive across borders. War crimes have been very difficult to manage that DNA data. For example, in Cyprus, where there are a number of people that died from the Cypriot wars in the 70s and 80s, and the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots both died and both are in in mass graves in Cyprus, but neither will work with the other in order to identify the remains because each only wants to identify the remains from their own countrymen. So they have to work with this third party. And in that case, they can work with Bodhi Technology or the International Commission on Missing Persons or some organization that can work with the data, identify the remains, and then communicate that back to those particular countries. That kind of bureaucratic difficulty is partly what faces the live missing persons. And one country does not want to take responsibility for investigating a missing person for another country's family members. What kind of non-governmental organization do you see at the center of this, managing this data? By managing the DNA data at an intergovernmental organization like the ICMP, that data is protected from government intrusion. And then our governmental organization sits outside of any government authority and is responsible at at the uh, international Hague level, the Hague in the Netherlands, where they can manage the data for human rights cases and only responsible to the member states. If anyone tries to get that data or get access to that data, they can deny those subpoenas. They can fight them and can protect that data as they have for war crime investigations. This is mostly focused on families that are separated in in the U.S., but do you see this as something that could be used more broadly? Yes. The ICMP, the International Commission on Missing Persons, they have this capability already for the war dead, for the Bosnian conflict, for Libyan conflict, for Syrian deceased people, and they have the ability to do this for live people too. They are actually in The Hague in the Netherlands, and they're amidst the thousands of unaccompanied children that are crossing into Europe, the Syrian conflict or the Libyan conflict, etc. Children migrating all through Africa or from Africa and separations that are happening as families are coming into Europe. There needs to be a better system. We need a global framework and we don't have one. And that's problematic. It's fine to look at the border between Mexico and the United States and try to get United States and Mexico to work together and to figure out solutions for managing the children that are coming from third and fourth and fifth other countries. But it'd be better to have a global protocol that can manage all of the countries around the world and the children that are displaced and needing to find ways back to their families. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for covering this work. Sarah Casanas is a research assistant professor at the Lurie Children's Hospital and Northwestern University. You can find a link to the policy forum we talked about at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. 
on the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can subscribe there or anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.